This is EM Pulse, bringing research and expert opinion to the bedside, with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. This is my lane. This is my lane. This is my lane. Welcome back to EM Pulse. Today's topic, like many of the topics we struggle with, is complex and emotionally and politically charged. While this is a UC Davis EM podcast, and many of the voices you hear today, including our own, are those of UC Davis EM physicians, the opinions expressed may not be those of UC Davis institution and health system. Just keep that in mind. And you may want to turn this off if you have little ones in the car, or at least listen to it in another space. When was the last time you saw a victim of gun violence? If you work in the ED, you likely don't have to think back that far. I have been an emergency medicine physician for 19 years. I've had the pleasure of working in Texas and Louisiana and California. I have seen innumerable victims of gunshot wounds. One case that I think is really poignant is um, a patient that I saw who was taken from a house and was the only survivor where an execution had occurred. And most of the inhabitants of the home did not survive the execution, but this one particular young woman did survive. She arrived to the emergency department with a gunshot wound to the head. That was her only injury. I was looking at this young woman who I know is someone's daughter and is so perfect in the way that someone's daughter is, and I didn't know too much more about her. And it was profound to me that something so barbaric and antiquated is still happening in our country, in a place where we think we live in a society of justice and fairness. To have seen something like a mass execution is profound and really just still unbelievable to me. This is my lane. When I was training in Australia, I saw a total of six gunshot wounds and five of those were accidental. That was in eight. That would be eight years. And then when I came here... One night, I saw six gunshots in one night, and it didn't even make the front page of the paper. There were lots of ones that I remember. I remember children accidentally discharging their parents' weapons and dying. And we normally wouldn't see somebody who's died out of hospital, but children they tend to still bring to us. And I remember the people who sustained a spinal cord injury in otherwise the prime of their life and end up profoundly disabled forever and with terrible pressure areas and they just it's a really miserable existence for those people who are often already socially disadvantaged and economically disadvantaged it's just really terrible this is our lane a few nights ago, I was on a shift overnight when we had a patient who came in with gunshot wounds, um, both to the head and then uh, to the lower back area in the pelvis. Um, 
you know, the memorable thing about that one was when we went to roll him, um, I mean, it was very obvious that he had a, a wound on the back of the head with brain matter coming out the back. Um, you know, he obviously wasn't really responding or talking or doing anything at that time. Um, he was breathing barely. So, yeah, I wish I could say that was unique. <laughs> but unfortunately, um, you know, in the short time that I've been doing this, it's a pretty common injury. I uh, worked uh, two years in a, for my fellowship in a uh, trauma ICU in St. Louis, uh, which is a pretty uh, high gun violence population. Um, and it was rare to have a night that we didn't admit somebody with gunshot wounds. This is most definitely my lane. Gosh. There's been a few, and it's probably hard to recall all of them. There's one that happened within the past few months. We actually acquired the patient as a transfer from another hospital. They stabilized her. She's a three-year-old that got shot by drive-by shooting. She wasn't outside. She wasn't in a car. She was inside her house. Um, even though I didn't directly take care of her, I was only the doc that, except that saw her with trauma surgery at transfer. It's still something that's really, really hard to take. And I can't imagine the doctors that had to take care of her at the other end. Um, Three-year-olds, three years old, you know. Um, and that set off a chain of events for me personally in terms of where I am um, in my career and why is it so hard in terms of taking care of patients. And it's first time in about almost 16 years of being in medicine that I sought out counseling for the first time ever in my life, actually. This isn't just my lane. It's my highway. Last November, the NRA tweeted suggesting that self-important anti-gun doctors stay in their lane. Yeah, and this set off a wave of responses from incensed physicians across the country with the hashtags, this is my lane and this is our lane. This hit especially close to home for emergency medicine physicians and trauma surgeons who treat victims of firearm violence on a daily basis. That line, this isn't just my lane, it's my highway, that went viral as part of a tweet from Dr. Judy Melanick. She's a forensic pathologist who has seen more than her fair share of firearm fatalities. But it also angered the broader medical community who recognized the importance of physicians' role in researching public health issues and finding evidence-based solutions. Listening to these stories, Sarah, it really strikes me how common these physicians perceive gun violence to be. You notice they use phrases like innumerable or too numerous to count. Yeah, and I interviewed the first four physicians that I came across that day. So imagine what it would have been like if I had interviewed the entire department. Yeah, I'm sure we all have images of gun violence that we just can't let go. I know for me, one image I have was not the death of my patient, but it was actually a fairly small wound. It was a toddler who was on his mother's hip when she was hit in a drive-by shooting. He was resting his hand on her chest where a stray bullet going through his hand into her heart killed her. And that young mom died at the scene. My kiddo's hand was injured badly, but the injury of his hand is nothing compared to the trauma 
of looking at your own mangled hand every day, knowing the bullet that killed your mom went through your own hand. How can you not have PTSD? How is violence not in that kiddo's future? How can I forget that? Most of my victims are innocent bystanders from unfortunate timing or sometimes unfortunate surroundings that put them at risk. But it feels so unfair. What can I do? Yeah, here in Davis and Sacramento, where we are, we were all affected by the recent death of Officer Natalie Corona, a 22-year-old police officer who was shot multiple times while responding to a motor vehicle collision. And despite all the efforts from our colleagues at UC Davis and the first responders, she didn't make it. It's a terrible tragedy, obviously most devastating for her family and friends and her fellow officers. But it affects the medical providers as well. So unfortunately, we know these situations all too well. The adrenaline pumping through the entire team as they try in vain to resuscitate the victim. The decision to call time of death. The officers guarding the door waiting for family. And I live in Davis, where shootings are a pretty rare occurrence. And several friends and family members were downtown that night and feared for their own lives. This affects everyone. Yeah, you know, sir, we were actually downtown about an hour before it happened. And it scares me to think about having been in that space even where violence occurred. It's just not a part of my personal daily life while it's a part of my professional daily life. And we have been wanting to address gun violence because... Well, it is something that we see in our professional lives all the time. And our own Dr. Garen Wintemute is one of the premier physician investigators in the United States. But as we were writing this, it was hard to know where to focus. You know, of course, mass shootings is the hot topic that everyone is talking about. But that isn't really what we see day in and day out. And suicide or suicide ideation is definitely something we see daily. Mental health issues and gun violence intersect frequently, so should we screen? Should we be talking about that? Do we talk about how treating victims of gun violence impacts us as physicians? There were just so many things to cover. Yeah, clearly this is not a simple issue, nor will we be able to cover everything today. But we decided to step back from the emotional and political aspects of this and talk about the science of gun violence and why we as physicians should consider this our lane. To do this, we spoke with Dr. Garen Wintemute. Garen is a professor of emergency medicine, and he is the founder and director of the UC Davis Violence Prevention Research Program, which was founded in 1991. He is also the director of the new University of California Firearm Violence Research Center. That was founded in 2017. He is one of the country's leading researchers on this topic, and we were fortunate to be able to sit down with him to talk about his work. We asked him about this concept of what the physician's role is in gun violence. Why should this be our lane? To start with, um, we approach violence as a health problem and more specifically a public health problem. That used to be a hard sell. I think that's a fairly easy case to make these days. It was probably best made by another physician, David Satcher, just when he took over as head of CDC in the mid-90s. He said, look, if violence isn't a health problem, then why are all these people dying from it? Mm -hmm. You know, it's really kind of that simple. When I say we approach it as a public health problem, I don't mean anything special about the nature of violence. I, I mean specifically that it can be studied as if it were a health problem. It's sort of like the duck test. It behaves as if it were a health problem. We can understand it that way. We can intervene based on that understanding. It's the sort of approach 
that we took to motor vehicle trauma in the 50s and the 60s. And it worked for that, and now it's working for violence. So that's the fundamental. Having said that, but staying at the basic level, we've discovered a lot of myths, or I'll, I'll say a lot of discrepancies between the epidemiology of violence and the public's understanding of violence. First off, it's not primarily a crime problem. Two-thirds of firearm violent deaths in the United States are suicides, not homicides. And if you drill down to that, you realize there are completely different different demographic groups involved in, in those two types. And everybody understands that risk for firearm homicide, like risk for homicide, is highest among young men of color, particularly young African-American men. Suicide risk is highest among old white guys. And if I, as I often do, move from epidemiology into policy and advocacy, or at least political um, activity, it's important to stress that whoever you might be, this problem affects people like you, not mm. just people who aren't like you. And mass shootings have really changed the game in that regard, because for the first time, everybody feels like they have a stake in the issue. So we wanted to know, if this is a public health problem, why haven't we as physicians been a major part of the solution? So actually, starting in the 80s, we very consciously developed the idea and did some research along the lines of that idea that violence could be studied as if it were a health problem, which we thought it was. That effort was timed to a, a rapid increase in rates of firearm violence in the 1980s and 90s. And our work was part of something larger, something this country actually does really well, when it puts its mind to it. We understood that there was an epidemic, as it was described at the time, and we mobilized. We started a research effort across the country. There was federal funding for research. Smart people were on the case. It was very consciously what we did for motor vehicles. Study the problem, understand it, make recommendations, have policymakers ready to put those recommendations into action. That's what worked for motor vehicle injuries. For firearm violence, that effort got cut off just a few years after it started when federal research funding was essentially zeroed out, not completely, and there never was a ban on research, as people commonly think there was. But as a practical matter, that mobilization came to an end. And for 20 years, from the mid-90s until about 10 years ago, or even less, there were only about a dozen people in the entire country, two physicians in the entire country, who kept to a career commitment to study this issue. You know, here's a problem that was at the time killing 30,000 people a year or close to 40,000 people now, a dozen people studying it. It's, in, in retrospect, it's very sad, but it's also laughable how disproportionate was the response to the problem compared to the size of the problem itself. To give another example, um, I saw, I, I think, one of the very first cases of AIDS as an ER doc in the early 80s, and we knew we were up against something really big, and there was a time when that diagnosis was a death sentence, but we didn't tolerate that. We put hundreds and then thousands of people on the case, and AIDS is now a manageable chronic condition. We have simply chosen over and over again, consciously and deliberately, not to take that approach with firearm violence. I find this so frustrating, Sarah. And it's really kind of bizarre. I mean, sepsis, liver disease, motor vehicle collisions each kill a similar number of people as firearms per year in this country. But we have thousands of doctors and scientists in researching these causes of death. 
Why should we not devote equal resources to studying firearm deaths? It's true for a bunch of reasons. Um, One is firearms are a consumer product. So there's an industry that is devoted to maximizing sales, maximizing use, etc., um, there are political organizations. There's, it, it, again, to draw a contrast between motor vehicles and firearms or tobacco and firearms, there isn't a United Smokers of America. There isn't a United Drivers <laughs> of America. But there is an organization by another name that I will call the United Gun Owners of America. And it's a very powerful political organization, which has been able more in the past than presently to call the shots in Congress. So there simply has not been the sort of response. The other is that there also isn't any language in the Constitution about tobacco and, and or in the Bill of Rights, to be technically correct, about tobacco and motor vehicles. There is about firearms, and there is an understanding now legitimized by the Supreme Court that there is an individual right to keep this product for specified purposes, and that has also constrained efforts to regulate its use. Okay, so how and why has this changed? Rates of violence began to climb. And then I, I think the, the, the real watershed, and it's become even clearer in retrospect, was 2012. So a little bit less than 10 years ago, there was a series of public mass shootings culminating in Sandy Hook. And we had had public mass shootings before. We had, had Columbine and Virginia Tech and others. But in 2012, um, first there was Aurora and a bunch of people in a movie theater, and then there was a mass shooting at a, at a religious facility. Um, and then there was Sandy Hook, all those kids. I, I remember exactly where I was when I heard that news, and I suspect a lot of other people did. Within hours, and I'm not exaggerating, I, I remember the hours, it was clear that something was different. And that pressure mounted, and it's never really let up. People started joining the field, um, new investigators, people from other other fields of research, stepping up in 2013 saying, I need to be part of this now. Mm. I reached a personal tipping point. And that has continued. What's happened in the last six years now is every time there's been a big mass shooting, public mass shooting, there's been, first off, collective national grief. I mean, it feels like a knife to the chest. It's just physical feeling and anguish and a demand for change, either nothing happens or not enough happens. A lot of people get discouraged. The acute pressure for change drops, but it never falls back to baseline. So what has happened over the last six years is event by event by event, there's been an increasing demand for something to be done. And things are again different after Parkland. And and I think for some specific reasons, one is, again, the victims are kids. Kids are innocent. They don't assume any of the guilt for what happened to them the way adults do, especially the way in this society stigmatized populations do. They don't ask for it. It's put on them. That's how part of how our society works. But these kids, unlike the kids at Sandy Hook, don't need spokespeople. They can talk for themselves and they do a damn good job of it. The other thing is that this time, unlike, I would argue, Sandy Hook and a number of the others, This time, there's a very clear, focused, discrete policy that's in effect in other states that, had it been in effect in Florida, would have prevented Parkland. Florida, since Parkland, has enacted that policy over the NRA's objections, 
And the NRA's response has been to change its position and recommend that other states adopt a similar policy. So there is concrete movement since the date of that massacre. And in addition, on a daily basis now, I get queries, sometimes more than one a day, from people in all walks of life wanting to know how they can help. A lot of those people are physicians, because I am, but they're everything from elected officials to just the guys at the gym to foundation presidents. There is a real sense of, in the public, I got to do something. Mass shootings are the reason there is a public conversation, but they account for no more than 1% to 2% of all deaths from firearm violence. How I say it is for homicide. People understand that the group at high risk, highest risk for homicide are young men and particularly young men of color. If I can put a great deal of demographic, social, whatever distance between me and the people at risk, it's not my problem. Suicide is more common. We don't have a public understanding of suicide in the United States. It's invisible. Public mass shootings are completely different. Whoever I am, they happen to people just like me because they happen to a cross-section of the population. Wherever I go, they happen in places just like the places I go. They happen at the mall and the movie theater and places of worship and so forth. So they could happen to people like me. They could happen to me far and away. 98 to 99% of the problem is the kind of violence that doesn't make the news or doesn't make the news as much. And I think that's in large part because we've gotten used to it, or we did, we, we did. We came to understand it as part of America, as if it had to be that way, and it does not have mm. to be that way. So it doesn't make the news. A lot of people are have been concerned that we'll come to understand public mass shootings as part of America. I don't think that's going to happen. I think the reverse is going to happen, that outrage over those events is going to grow to outrage over firearm violence and violence generally that we're finally going to understand it doesn't have to be this way. There are other countries like ours where it isn't this way. It's not mm. hypothetical. The case has been proven that it doesn't have to be this way. This brings me hope that there are people wanting to help and that we as a country want change. I was intrigued by what Garen mentioned, but I was intrigued by this policy that Garen mentioned that could have prevented Parkland. So we asked him to explain more. Here in California, we call it a gun violence restraining order. It's been implemented in California. We're actually studying it to see if it does work in a sense of reducing violence. The idea is this. The gun violence restraining order is designed for people who are clearly at imminent risk for doing something awful, and firearms are part of the equation. But they haven't committed a crime, so they can't be arrested. They're not psychotic. They're, they don't meet what we call 5150 criteria here in California. They can't be hospitalized. So we let them go. But everybody knows that something's going to happen. With a gun violence restraining order, which was modeled after domestic violence law here in California, family members or law enforcement can go to a judge and make a case, just as we do for DV. The judge has to follow specified rules of evidence, which are in the statute. But if the judge agrees, yep, we got a problem, we don't have all the answers, but we know that guns are part of what make this problem so acute, the judge can issue an order saying, sir or ma'am, but it's usually a guy, of course, for the next three weeks, you can't buy guns, you can't have guns, 
The order is served by law enforcement, given the situation. It comes with a search warrant if one is requested. And the process is basically knock, knock. Hi, sir, you're having a really bad time. We know about that. Here's an order from the court. We, we need your firearms and we're not leaving without them. It's been done a couple hundred times here in California. I know for a fact, because we're doing the evaluation, that that uh, mechanism has thwarted at least two mass shootings, two that I'm aware of. Wow. We're still gathering records. Had a GVRO been available in Florida, the woman that Nicholas Cruz lived with or local law enforcement could have gone to a judge. We understand that law enforcement dropped the ball and they might have dropped the ball if this had been available, but it wasn't available. Right. And Florida has taken that step. It's smart stuff. It will not change rates of violence. That's not what it's designed to do. It's one case at a time. But one case at a time, it will take firearms out of high-risk situations and prevent the kind of tragedies we all read about. So I agree. This seems like a really smart policy. And yet that's a little intimidating to approach on a shift. So we wanted to know, how does this happen practically? If you're a physician, here in California, you can't go to the judge yourself. I helped draft the bill in California, and originally physicians were in there. Physicians, through their organizations, asked to be taken out. So it's just family and law enforcement. So in our ED, if, if I were in this situation, I'd talk to law enforcement in the emergency department. Generically, for physicians, you need some kind of intermediary. But as with domestic violence, the petitioner, as it's called, can go straight to the judge or could get some assistance. And there is a, I'm going to plug a website. It's speakforsafety.org is a website that's specific to California where people can go and, and get information and concrete help. There's a form that has to be filled out. It's not complicated, the form. I helped design it. A judge looks at it. These things are done essentially immediately. The understanding is we have a problem now. So if the order is filed in the morning by family members, it will be looked at that day. There's actually an emergency mechanism, just as there is for DV. An officer can be on the scene at three in the morning and make a call and get the judge on call and have it all happen at real in real time at three in the morning. But there is no time lag. The order, the petition would be reviewed that day. It is an absolute priority for law enforcement. They are the, the standard, it, this isn't written, it's just every everybody in law enforcement agreed, this is what we're going to do. They're going to be served that same day or the next day mm. um, because the crisis is now. And let me emphasize something here. For the kind of orders I've been talking about, there's an understanding that there's an emergency and a judge has agreed that there's an emergency. There is not due process of law in what I've just described. There's no hearing. There's an emergency. We don't have time for that. So the judge issues the order, the guns are recovered, but the order's only good for three weeks in California, precisely because the person who's the respondent hasn't had a chance to make his or her case. Garen studies all of this objectively, and so we asked him about what the data shows in terms of where the violence occurs. One of the ways in which violence behaves like a public health problem is this. Risk for violence or for any subset is not evenly spread across the population at risk. There are demographic risk factors, there are geographic risk factors, et cetera, et cetera. Turns into there are hotspots, which is helpful because you can focus your prevention resources on hotspots. 
But this is particularly true for homicide and cities, not just here in California, but across the country. There's been a substantial increase in homicide, firearm homicide rates nationally. That increase is substantially driven by changes in just four big cities. They're big enough, and the changes are big enough there that that they can drive an an uptick in the national rate. Hmm. But one of the ways in which people in general misunderstand violence statistics, or for that matter, statistics for any other major health problem, is they think the national data apply to them. And that's never true. If you live in one of those four cities, life is pretty tough. But in most of the country, the recent uptick in homicide has simply not occurred. So on the one hand, we have to talk about that because that's the truth. On the other hand, I don't want people to go, oh, it's not my problem. It's the problem in those cities and not be mobilized to do something about it. And to weave one more thread back in, that's where mass shootings are different. Mm. Because unlike homicide in big cities, I don't live in a big city, mass shootings happen in it can't happen here kinds of places. They happen in mid-sized cities and small towns, places where background rates of violence are low. So everybody has a stake. But how have mass shootings changed the way that we practice medicine? I don't think they've changed the practice of medicine. What they have done, I think, is helped motivate physicians, as they've helped motivate lots of other people, to doing something about the problem. Uh, Let me put it this way. An an early realization for me, and I I owe another ER doc, a a friend of mine named Art Kellerman, who's now dean of the Ushu's Medical School, but he and I kind of, we were foxhole buddies involved in this field in the 80s. Art did a study proving something that we all knew, but it was in the background, and he brought it right up front. Most people who die from gunshot wounds die where they're shot doesn't matter how fast the ambulance gets there. It doesn't matter how quickly they get to the level one. doesn't matter how good we are, the trauma surgeons are. Those people are dead. And for me as a clinician, to make the maximum inroads into the number of people who die from firearm violence, I need to prevent them from being shot in the first place. Hmm. That's what's happening with mass shootings in two ways. I'm going to use Sandy Hook as an example. That event occurs. Ambulances flood the schoolyard. They all leave empty. Everybody's dead. Mm. And and that point got really driven home. So what's happening for clinicians is they're recognizing, I need to get involved in prevention. Some of them are doing it through their professional associations. Um, Some of them are doing it individually. Um, We've decided to help support that effort. We've actually created something I'm going to brag about here for just a minute. It is called the What You Can Do Initiative. And actually, let me, I'm going to tell you the story behind it. The Las Vegas mass shooting happens. And I'm doing a lot of media, thinking I'm not going to write anything this time. I don't have anything new to say. And the editors of um, Annals of Internal Medicine contacted me and said, would you write something? I didn't respond to them because I didn't want to say no to friends and their friends. <laughs> And so I gave it a couple of days, and then I wrote him back and said, tell you what, I'll write something if, you're, if you'd be willing to do something that journals don't do. And I actually think no journal has ever done this. They said yes. So what I did was write a commentary. The readership are physicians, and the title was What You Can Do to Stop Firearm Violence. The what you can do is 
ask your patients about firearms when it's appropriate. And we had already written some articles talking about when it's appropriate and that there are no gag laws and so on. So ask them when it's appropriate and do something with their responses. And sort of as a joke with the readers, physicians, I said, okay, we all know about changing health behavior. Making a public commitment is important. So reader, make the public commitment. And Annals of Internal Medicine set up a facility on the website so that people could make those public commitments and add some comments and so on. Almost 1,500 have. Um, But we went another step. We launched a website that now has materials for physicians and for patients that has a bunch of resources to read right there at the website, links to the literature and so on. So how it's starting to change, and I hope it will continue to change the practice of medicine, is by enlisting physicians as one more labor force working actively daily to keep firearm violence from happening. That will do two things. In the short run, it will work because having high-risk people change the way they store their guns or give them to somebody else on a temporary basis will, one case at a time, help prevent violence. But the other thing it's going to do is it's going to change the way we think about firearms in in society, which over the long haul is essential if we're going to make enduring change here. The Annals website now shows over 2,500 physicians have committed to making this a priority. The links to the Annals of Internal Medicine commitment to ask about gun violence and Garen's own website are in the show notes. But does that mean we have to screen everyone? For emergency medicine physicians, for most physicians, it doesn't make sense to screen everybody. Pediatricians are different because for all of their patients, they need to know about firearms and so forth. But they already know that. So talking to the rest of us, um, there are times when it's a no-brainer. If I'm seeing somebody for an acute mental health emergency associated with dangerousness to self or others, I need to do a lethality assessment. I need to know about firearms. I've taken firearms off people in the in the our emergency department, not recently, but but in the old days. So that's just a given. Then more broadly, there are risk factors associated with risk for future violence. So in particular, alcohol and controlled substance abuse, alcohol more than controlled substances, a prior history of violence. Um, presentations to the ED for injuries, especially if they're related to violence and so on. So if I'm talking to somebody and I realize I'm developing a risk factor profile here that's got my antennae up, I've developed that profile with the patient. They're aware of it. So I will talk about, you know, you got some risk factors here. And when I encounter somebody with risk factors, I tend to ask some further questions about access to weapons and intent to use them and so forth. So let's have that conversation. Are there any guns in and around your home like that? And and if the answer is yes, do you have access to them? Do they belong to you? And so on. What I've done in that process, which takes not a whole lot longer than it just took me to describe it, is implicitly establish relevance to the patient um, and make it explicit for a moment. You've got some risk factors here. I take just a few seconds to mention the word firearms in a declarative sentence before I ask the question so that they're not reacting to both the question and firearms at the same time. And I take my time about it if I can. If I can't, I I push a little bit. If they decline to answer, they've declined to answer. I'm aware of that. I don't push it unless I really need to know because I'm doing a lethality assessment or something. So I'm selective. The other type of case I'll mention is If I'm seeing typically a woman 
for injuries that I suspect are related to DV. Whether she said so or not, I will ask that question because I'm concerned about the partner. I'm actually also concerned about her. Women who have firearms in violent relationships are at increased risk for violence with the firearm present. I may not try and talk her out of it, but I might present her that information. So if we do identify a patient who we feel is at risk, that's where the GVRO comes in, that gun violence restraining order. But remember, this has to be initiated by family or law enforcement, so get them involved. Another situation to consider is cognitive decline. Garen suggests that if you're having a conversation with grandma or grandpa about the car keys, you should probably be thinking about the guns as well. Now, only 13 states have GVROs or Extreme Risk Protection Orders, ERPOs, as they're also called. So this may not even be an option where you are. In that case, Garen recommends talking with family or even having gun retailers hold the guns in escrow until the crisis is passed, which is being done in some places. So are policies like these the solution? There is no one answer to this complex health and social problem. There's not even one kind of answer. There need to be policies that are specifically targeted at high-risk individuals. There need to be policies that have broader application. There need to be interventions that have nothing to do with policy. All of those things at the same time. But for policies, on my short list would be um, here in California, um, we have some research coming out. I, I, I know the results, um, so I, I'm pretty confident about, about this. They're just not ready to talk about yet. But I think we will be able to make a really solid evidence-based case that the criteria for denial of firearm purchase in any state should extend to people with a documented history of alcohol abuse, multiple convictions for driving under the influence, and so on. Our research to date has shown, and we've got some bigger stuff coming, that if you control for everything else, among people who legally purchase firearms, those with a history of alcohol abuse are substantially more likely than others to commit serious violent crimes with guns later. That comports with everything we know about alcohol abuse and violence. That understanding has just not been extended to purchasing and possessing firearms. I think that will change. I think it should change if our results turn out to be what I expect. The other, and this is based on, on work that we did actually a long time ago, I think it would make sense for denial criteria, denial of purchase, to be extended to people with prior convictions for violent crimes. One of the myths about gun policy in the United States is this. Violent criminals can't buy guns legally. That's just not true. If the conviction is not for a felony, if it's not for a domestic violence misdemeanor, in most of the country, you can have lots of those convictions and still buy all the guns you want. Here in California, we changed the law. We were that way and, and then moved to um, adopt that new prohibition. And our group evaluated that natural experiment and found that it had a very large beneficial effect on the people who were denied, newly denied. The other area that we're working on, I, I think it's really promising, but our work's not done yet, uh, so I, I can't make a firm recommendation, is kind of the flip side. We spend a lot of time all across the country working to prevent prohibited people from acquiring guns. We don't do anything generally in, in the United States about people who bought them legally but have now become prohibited. I've just been convicted of a violent crime. I've just been served with a domestic violence restraining order. I've just been hospitalized. There are probably millions of people in the United States who legally bought guns but are now prohibited, 
And and the thing to keep in mind is those prohibiting events in and of themselves are associated with an increased risk for, for violence. They're prohibitions that make sense, and guns are part of the equation. In most of the country, nothing is done about those guns. Here in California, there is a statewide program. It's called the Armed and Prohibited Persons System that identifies those people because California has the data that make that possible. And it leads to a knock on the door. Hi, sir. Real sorry, but you've become a prohibited person. You got guns. We're not leaving without them. What we know about that uh, intervention is that as a matter of process, it works. Tens of thousands of people have been contacted and had guns recovered, and nobody's been hurt. Think about that. What we don't know is whether that recovery is associated with a reduced risk of arrest. Our group is doing that evaluation. Intuitively, it makes a lot of sense, but intuition can lead you astray. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But as you said, we, we follow the science. Gun violence sucks. I think all sides can agree this sucks. But who should be at the decision-making table? I would argue physicians should be a part of the solution for several reasons. This is our lane. Pulse check. We heard from several providers. We all see firearm-related deaths frequently, and it's impacting our professional and personal lives. We are on the front line. We walk through the blood-soaked bays and hold the hands of parents when we tell them their child has died unnecessarily. This is not something new. Physicians and investigators historically have been a key part of identifying things that affect the health of our patients and the public. We have been a part of the solution. Look at motor vehicle collision injuries. Garen points out that while mass shootings are a fraction of firearm-related deaths, they make the issue relevant to everyone. And we can do something about it. We can impact our patients one patient at a time by asking our patients who have concerns for mental health illnesses, who are victims of violence or alcohol-related injuries, about the guns at home. And in California, at least, we can work with family or law enforcement to make sure the guns are safe in the short term. Go to the Annals of Internal Medicine site or the UC Davis What You Can Do to Stop Firearm Violence site and commit to being part of the solution. This is a hot-button issue, so let's respectfully continue the conversation on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as at Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to our podcast. We're on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please rate us. It helps others discover us. We have another emergency medicine conference coming up, the UC Davis Emergency Medicine Winter Conference at the Ritz-Carlton in Tahoe on March 4th through 8th. Find out more in the show notes. And we have some exciting news. We will be podcasting from the Western Regional SAM Conference in Napa, March 21 and 22. So we will be bringing you all of the best highlights from the conference. If you're in the Western United States and you want to come and join us, register through the link in our show notes. As always, thank you to our department. Your compassion and passion inspire us. And thank you to OM Audio Productions. And one last thing. We typically publish our episodes on the 3rd and 17th of the month, but in February, we are going to publish on the 18th for a particularly febrile, I mean hot, episode. (laughs) I can't tell you more because there is an embargo and we might lose our firstborn children if we tell you, but it should be super interesting, so don't miss out. Thanks, guys. See you next time.